Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Denisons, the Denisons, the busiest in the biz. You do know who it is, it's Dennis Quaid. That's him. Hello there. Today I am joined by Dr. Anthony Fauci, an immunologist who has spent his career studying infectious diseases. Since January 2020, he has been one of the lead members of the Trump administration's White House Corona Task Force, addressing the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Dennis. Hey, Dr. Fauci, how are you? Uh, you can call me Tony, Dennis, please. Great to be with you, sir. You're the busiest man in the United States and perhaps the world right now. So I'll get right to it. Uh, you know, I, my family and I, we, we went through the, the lockdown and the, the kids were, are in Zoom school now. There's a lot of disappointment that goes with that. A lot of psychological things that are happening. I also, uh, we've grown a lot closer o- o- over this time. But uh, now with school starting, what are the, some of the things that I can do to keep my family safe now? Well, that's a good question. And you know, it really depends on where you are physically with the family and what the level of virus is in the community. I mean, obviously you make a good point, the psychological aspect of just being locked in with a very, very little social interaction takes a toll on people. As you said correctly, in some respects, it brings families closer, but in other respects, it creates a lot of tension and stress. So the general things we say is that within the family structure, fine, you're okay. When you go out, if you have to, which you should, you don't want to be locked in all the time. There are about four or five fundamental things that clearly work when you look historically and otherwise, is that wear a mask, number one. You don't need to do that now when you're in with your family, but wear a mask, keep physical distancing about six feet, avoid crowds, and always outdoor better than indoor. If you're going to do things that would require your being someplace else other than your home, try and do it outdoors, even if it's social settings. The thing that really kicks off the issue of spread are indoor congregated events, even when they're seemingly innocent, like people who know each other and family. So if you could do that to the extent that it's possible, then you can really be keeping your family safe. You live, you live in, in, in California, Dennis? Love, yes, sir, I live in California. You know, we opened up uh, a little bit and then had to shut everything down again and then we're reopening up in the process of right now. And it's very frustrating for people with their jobs, with uh, uh, you know, just get, to get back to their lives. Yeah. We're, but we are going to have a vaccine here soon. And do you, do you think that a vaccine can be developed in record time? 
Yeah, you know, I think so, and I think I, I'm I'm wanting, I'm glad I get the opportunity to maybe explain it to you in a little bit detail because there's so much noise out there, Dennis, that the the right information just sometimes doesn't get translated. Right now, there are a number of vaccine candidates, about seven that are being supported one way or the other, directly or indirectly, by the U.S. government, either by subsidizing it, helping to develop it, or using the clinical trial sites tested. Three of those are in phase three trial, which means they're advanced. There's going to be about 30,000 people per trial. And obviously, we're doing very quickly, but I can tell you it's not at the expense of safety, nor is it compromising scientific integrity. Uh, the three trials that are in phase three, two of them started July 27th, which means they're more than two-thirds enrolled. So the trials that are aiming for 30,000 people already have 22,000 people in it. And what happens is that the projection that we're making is that we should know by the end of this calendar year, November or December, whether or not we have a safe and effective vaccine. Myself as a scientist, Dennis, I can I can say I'm, I'm, I'm generally conservative when it comes to projections about success. I always hold back a bit. But I think based on the data that we have seen so far in animals and in the phase one study, that I'm cautiously optimistic that we will have a safe and effective vaccine by the end of the year and we'll be able to be distributing doses to an extensive way as we get into 2021. And by the time we get into mid 2021 to late 2021, we probably would have most of the people who are vulnerable need to be vaccinated, vaccinated. That gets to your question of mm -hmm. when can we actually think in terms of returning to some form of normality? You know, there's always gonna be attention to the public health things. We can't go back to being careless about it as long as there's some virus in society. But if we get a vaccine that's even 70% effective, 65, 70, 75% effective, the combination of public health measures with a vaccine that's widely distributed, I think you can start to see getting out into some form of normality. And what we've got to convince everybody is to hang in there because people are getting worn out psychologically with this. I mean, I I feel it myself <laughs> and I can, you know, I could project what other people are experiencing. So if we could, as a country, hang in there, you know, pull together until we get a vaccine, I think we can get out of this pretty well. Yeah, I, I was listening to you yesterday and you were talking about the trials and uh, some were looking at it being a setback. Somebody had developed, uh, was it a disease or an infection coming off of no, that? No, no. Yeah, but that's the normal course of testing, is it not? Yeah, you know, actually, I'm 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 interested that you actually heard me say that is that people were concerned that that that's referred to Dennis as a serious adverse event. It's an they call it SARS in vaccine, and that in some respects is unfortunate that it happened. But the reason I I found a silver lining in that is that it showed that the system works. Yes. Because people always say, you're really going fast, or you're compromising safety. And we're really not, because the very fact that it was picked up quickly 
and immediately the trial was put on hold, which means nobody else gets enrolled in the trial until we can figure out what's going on. Is this a one-off event or are there maybe some suggestions it's occurring and we're not noticing it? Because if there was a carelessness about it, they wouldn't have called the, tr the trial off in the sense of, of halting it. So I, I got some degree of comfort in the fact that the system worked and said, when you get an adverse event, you stop, you don't go any further. It's amazing to me how clearly you always speak uh, and how your words can get twisted down the line. It's, yeah. uh, but uh, you're always clear. I'm I'm getting ready to take a flight today. In fact, uh, myself, I'm going to uh, to Oklahoma to start a film. Uh, this is going to be a, a brand new era for that. On the flight, I know a lot of people are always worried about airplane air and uh, you know, thinking that they caught a cold or flu whenever they get on there. But if somebody has the virus on my flight, how how likely am I to get the virus in such a close quarters? Well, you know, I got to tell you, Dennis, if you wear a mask, the chances are that you're going to dramatically diminish the likelihood of that happen. Most of the modern planes are the new ones that have been, uh, you know, manufactured within a reasonable period of time have what's called HEPA filters in that the air goes through filters that pull out viral particles. Now, just because it's recirculating and pulling it out, that doesn't mean that if somebody is right next to you, so you would hope that in the plane that the seating is spaced reasonably, that they don't have people. Not, no third seat. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But what I would recommend you do is to do this, Dennis, just wear something as simple as a mask, just like this, bingo, and you're in good shape. And, and so at, at this point, is, is the virus being spread mostly uh, by, by younger people? Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's that's an interesting thing that we try to get a message out to young people. The answer is if you look at the percent positivity of the number of tests that are taken, it's a reflection of the number of cases that you're going to see within a reasonable period of time. The percent positivity of the last few weeks has been concentrated in the 19 to 25-year-old people. And that is likely a reflection of the younger people out there during the holidays, out in bars and things like that, but also the going back to college and congregating in colleges and then getting infected and spreading it now. That's the reason why we have guidelines for colleges, which either they're going to do it virtually or if they're going to bring people in physically, what they're doing is that they're testing all of them and then intermittently doing surveillance testing. And when someone gets infected in a school setting, they should have the capability of isolating them either in a separate dorm floor or in a separate dorm. And we're recommending not sending them home because when you send them home, they reseed the community from which they came. What about the kids who are just going to regular school? Well, actually, K to 12 is a different story. And that is one where you have to look at what the level of infection is in the community that you're at. And that's the reason why we break it down into green zone, yellow zones, and red zone. So if you happen to be in a county or in a community where the level of infection is really very low, you can send your children back to school 
reasonable degree of impunity, so long as the school has the capability of if a child gets infected, you know what to do with it. You isolate the child, you make sure they're in a comfortable place. If they need medical help, they get it. When you get to the yellow zone or the red zone where there's a degree of infection, then you got to start manipulating the situation, particularly in the yellow zone. You could either do a hybrid of in-person as well as virtual, doing physical separation, maybe morning and afternoon classes, alternating, doing things like that. Once you get into the red zone, Dennis, then even though you'd like to see the children get back to school, you're really taking a chance of doing that if you're in a community that's red hot. And in fact, what we're seeing is that parents and teachers are talking with their feet. In other words, they're not showing up. No one wants to put their life in uh in danger and on the line there's no reason to here with a vaccine i know that uh the pediatrician my kid's pediatrician is called and you know the flu shot the new flu shot is available uh, for next year is that going to reduce uh my chances of getting COVID 19 at all and and also when we do have a vaccine for COVID, are we going to be taking regular flu shots as well as a, an additional COVID 19 shot yeah. year by year or how long will it go on Good question. So let me go to your questions one one after the other. The fact is that, yes, you should get the flu shot this year. The thing that we're having some hope with is that the very things that we're practicing to prevent us from getting COVID likely will diminish the likelihood that we're going to get influenza. Wearing a mask, physical separation, avoiding the crowds. In fact, it's really interesting, Dennis, because in Australia, which has their flu season before us because the flu season in Australia is April to September. Right. And so they just finished their flu season. They had the lightest flu season in memory. And they think almost certainly the reason is because everybody was practicing these very stringent public health measures of right. wearing a mask, avoiding a crowd, keeping the distance. So what we're hoping is that this will be true in the northern hemisphere where we are right now right because people so, tend to tend to think of flu season as being what october november you know through the cold months you know they have a tendency to, to let down in the summer and uh it's very interesting to hear let me answer your other question is that we don't know once we get a vaccine for, for the coronavirus whether or not it's going to be like flu where you're going to have to get it every season or whether you get vaccinated once and you're really good more than most people. We don't know the answer to that. We'll assume that if you get a vaccination that protects you, that sooner or later you're going to need a boost. So you should probably okay. get that, that assumption. Right. The virus has mutated, has it yeah. not? And I mean, yeah. it's really kind of developed into what an Italian strain and a and a Chinese strain that or the Pacific strain, right? That that the first cases in the United States that hit in the Northwest, in the Seattle, Washington State, California area, was clearly a Wuhan, China one. Mm -hmm. Then the virus went from China to Europe, and then Europe hit the Northeast, so that the infections that were in New York City metropolitan area actually was seeded from Europe, whereas the original ones that came into, into Washington State and California actually came directly from China. Right, the, 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 the Italian 
uh, strain that, that came through. The virus had already mutated a bit. Is, is that correct? And had learned how to be more contagious in a sense. Well, is it was, is, know, not necessarily. We, we, you know, there's the assumption that that's the case, but it isn't a clear cut, open and shut case. We mm-hmm. do know that the mutation that we have seen called a 614, all that means is that at a particular area of the virus, it mutated from one amino acid to another. Um, we're seeing it's a little bit different, but with the good news about that, Dennis, it doesn't seem to have any influence on whether or not a vaccine would be effective because the mutation is in a region that doesn't impact the vaccine and where the antibodies bind that are induced by the vaccine. I see. I see. Uh, you know, uh, I've been reading about you as, as well, and, and I, I, I know you have a very strong faith. Uh, you grew up, you were, your, your mother was an educator, and your father was a pharmacist. You've, you've been doing this all of your life. You used to ride your bicycle to deliver medicine to people. So just, you went from helping out your community to, to you're helping out the world. And I uh, can't tell you how much so many people appreciate you. And uh, it may be hard to believe sometimes doing your job, but uh, how has your faith impacted how, how you work today? You know, I, I have a broad general feeling of, of uh, you know, my, my education, Dennis, it was, as you probably know, because I, I guess you, you read about it, my, my family was always very much um, um, service-oriented, service to others. So in the sense of the tradition that I was trained in, both with the Catholic nuns at the Our Lady of Guadalupe in Brooklyn, New York, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, my high school which and my college, which were mostly Jesuit principles of service to humanity. So that when you talk about faith, it's more or less an obligation to serve mankind, which has been the thing that's driven me. Right. Can you kind of take us back about where you were when you first found out about this virus? And did, and did you ever in your wildest imagination uh, think that the United States would be so hard hit? Uh, I mean, I think uh, we're number one. I think India is behind us is, or maybe taking over. They have a billion people. Right. Where were you when you first heard about this virus? Well, I can tell you exactly. You know, I'll say one thing uh, that leads into this question, Dennis, is that people always have asked me throughout the years, if not the decades, as an infectious disease person, what is my worst nightmare? And I always say the same answer is that we get the evolution usually jumping from an animal to a human species of a respiratory virus that has two fundamental characteristics. One, it's very efficiently and effectively transmitted from person to person. And two, it has a significant degree of morbidity and mortality, particularly in certain subgroups. We've had experiences with outbreaks that had one, but not the other. And they've never been really the nightmare scenario. Like you know, back in the bird flu, when it used to jump from the chicken to a human, it killed humans, but it didn't efficiently go from human to human. So even though if you were an unlucky one that was near a chicken and got infected, you had a high degree of likelihood of dying, but the chances of spreading it were poor. 
Then we had the pandemic flu of 2009 that spread very, very, very efficiently. The only trouble was it was like a wimpy virus that didn't kill very many people. So the perfect storm is when you get both of them. That's exactly what we're living through now. With that as a background, at the end of December, literally New Year's Day, I had heard from my colleagues at the CDC that there was an interesting kind of strange pneumonia that was noted in China, in Wuhan, that was noted in a wet market where people come in to pick up animals from the wild, usually to serve at festive dinners during their holiday season. The first thought that came to my mind is, oh my goodness, we're dealing with another coronavirus. Because remember, we had SARS in 2002 that right. spread throughout the world, 8,000 people, 800 deaths. And the reason that it wasn't such a pandemic like today because of SARS, people got very sick very quickly, correct? And, and uh... Yeah, there were a couple of reasons. Number one, that it, it wasn't spread from asymptomatic spread. Only sick people essentially spread it. And number two, it didn't spread as efficiently from human to human. So the first week or so in January, when I started to realize, because we were getting intelligence from people in China, that even though the Chinese authorities were saying that it fundamentally goes from an animal to a human, but doesn't spread very well from human to human, I said, hmm, that's interesting, but let's see where it goes. And then as the couple of weeks went by, it became clear that that's nonsense. As we got into the middle of January, it was clear that it was spread from human to human. And it was only when we got into February that it became clear that it was spread very efficiently from human to human. And then it became, in my mind, like, oh my goodness, my worst case scenario has come true. And unfortunately it has. When I was a kid growing up, there were so many childhood diseases, especially, I guess I'm talking about measles, which was really feared and very, very contagious. Uh, why were we not quarantined for, for, for that, for polio? I remember going to finally get the polio vaccine, my mother with tears, we got it down at the, the local school. But uh, why was there no quarantining for, say, uh, those kinds of diseases, which killed millions and millions of children uh, uh, over time? You know, that's a good question. There was, in fact, some attempts at quarantine, certainly during the period of time with polio, that kids who had polio and it was probably a useless quarantine because once the child would wind up with polio, they're very likely they're not going to be spreading it. They already have the virus has been sequestered in their nervous system. But, this, but the issue with, with measles was interesting. It spread so efficiently and so amazingly, probably the most transmissible virus you possibly could have. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and uh, you know, we had the 1919 ep epidemic. And we didn't even learn about it in school, to my knowledge, uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> that I could that I could remember. But uh, uh, yesterday, uh, it was you know, it's Bob Woodward's book has been all over uh, the news, and a lot of things were attributed to you having said them about what Trump knew and this and that and what he thought. And I heard you in the interview yesterday that a lot of the things that that were being attributed to you were actually really said by others that yes. 
And uh, so it's you know, like a game of telephone where they, all of a sudden you're responsible for it. Well, it's an interesting game, Dennis, because what happens is that somebody tells somebody who said something to somebody, and then all of a sudden it looks like a direct quote, and it isn't. How much do you, how much do you think all this finger-pointing has helped to uh, get rid of this virus? It's, it's, very little, very yeah, little. So I wonder what it would have been like in a non-election year. That yeah. keeps going through my head. You know, we as Americans, I know we're going to get through this. It's it it's 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 gonna. We're all going to be okay. But I also heard that are we entering an age of pandemics? Yeah. Do, do, I, do you, what is you know, what is your opinion on that? And what is what is the the, the logic behind that? Okay, so y you have great intuition, Dennis, because I recently wrote a paper in. Sure. The of course, in, in a journal cell, which is a very, you know, uh, important journal. And, and, and I used it as, you know, what led up to COVID? What, what kind of an era are we in? And, you know, if you look at outbreaks uh, of brand new infections, about 70 to 75% of them are what we call zoonotic. They are namely a virus or a pathogen of any kind whose natural host is an animal that is probably adapted to it over centuries to the point that the animal generally doesn't get sick. Mm -hmm. But once it jumps species to a naive host like the human, then you can get epidemic and pandemic outbreaks. And if you look at the history of our outbreaks, HIV from a chimp to a human, devastated certain populations throughout the world. Influenza is fundamentally a disease of wild birds that have then adapted itself to human. Uh, Ebola, also the same thing. So what I said in the piece, which is a direct answer to your question, the more we perturb environment and the human-animal interface, the greater the chance you're going to have of these particular pathogens jumping species and adapting themselves to humans. Pathogens that we, we have no knowledge of. Like, right, exactly. Like, like coronavirus. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, the coronavirus, yeah. Dennis, is a perfect example of that. Because even if you go back to SARS, which was a fundamentally a, a virus that, that is in bats, mm -hmm. and you know, the bats do fine with them. They've adapted themselves evolutionarily to do just fine with coronaviruses. But what happened back in the original SARS and even now with the COVID-19 is that people go to what's called wet markets, where they bring in animals from the forest that generally don't interact with humans, and they buy them to serve them at festive dinners during holidays. And the people touch them, they come into contact with them, and then all of a sudden they wind up getting infected. If the virus doesn't adapt itself to transmit well from human to human, then you don't get a problem. You get a one-off. Somebody may get right. sick and that's it. But once you do it enough for the virus to adapt itself to efficient transmissibility, then you get what we have right now, which is what I told you is my worst nightmare, that you have a virus that not only can be deadly, but that transmits very, very efficiently. Yeah, and 
sometimes people don't even know they have it and then it's getting spread and that's the worst case scenario. I know it, when it, the Native American uh, population, uh, uh, starting I guess w mostly with Cortez, uh, I believe that 90% of uh, the Native American population died very quickly because of the diseases uh, uh, that were brought over from Europe, or at least they had no resistance to them. Absolutely. It wiped out substantial proportions of entire populations. Mm. And what is, what is going on with Africa? Because it hasn't been as hard hit, and there's, people are scratching their heads about that. I, it, it was really devastatingly affected by AIDS, uh, it seemed, after uh, the United States. You know what I think is going on, Dennis? I think that it is affecting Africa as much as you would expect. We're not noticing it in South Africa right now. Mm -hmm. When you talk to the people on the ground, it is really in the pandemic proportion there. One of the issues is that if you look in a population by population, the average age in a country like South Africa or other of the Southern African countries is rather significantly lower than the average age, for example, in Italy or in France or in the United States. And as you know, the younger you are, the more chances that you're gonna get infected, you're not even gonna notice it because it's so mild. So we think that Africa is not being spared, that it is in a pandemic situation. Probably the reporting uh, situation is, is probably maybe more difficult as well. Oh, of course. In some areas. Yeah, yeah. I really appreciate being here with you today. I, I know that you're a, a really busy man. We're, I myself am so thankful to have someone like you working on this and your work with AIDS. And uh, is there anything in medicine that you can think of that you would like to get into once we get through this? What is the thing that interests you? Yeah, well, you know, I'm still a lot of my time prior to COVID has been devoted to trying to put an end to the HIV AIDS pandemic. And I think that's one of the real important goals I've had. The other things is the things that we take for granted that are more global than domestic and the disease burden, for example, of how many children each year die of malaria unnecessarily. Yeah. How many people throughout the world die of an ancient disease that you would have thought we had control over tuberculosis. So you know, when you think of the three big killers that I would really like to continue to work on is HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria, we've kind well, of got sidetracked. We don't really even hear of, of, of AIDS being you know, on the front page or even on the back page anymore. Uh, it, I guess it's because of the drugs that, that, that have been developed to kind of calm it down or to, to, yeah. you know, help boost somebody's immune system. Is there anybody in this world walking around out there who's not going to catch COVID under any circumstances? Could yeah. it be that uh, you, you know, bubonic plague killed half of Europe? Is there anybody who has natural resistance? Yeah, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. Uh, in fact, when you look at the variability, the polymorphism in the human population, there are people who have essentially innate natural immunity that they won't get infected, even if they get exposed. Right. And that's their, their, the T cells that they have, which are our own body's ability to, to Right. To or things it. called natural killer cells, which are probably more in innate immunity than T cells, which are more specific and adaptive immunity. Here comes the flu season. 
and uh, I start feeling ill. How do I know if I've got the flu or if I've got COVID-19? Well, there are diagnostic tests for each and you should be able and hopefully we'll be able to get them more efficiently done as we get into the flu season. There are diagnostic tests for influenza that are specific and sensitive, and there are diagnostic tests for COVID-19. So if you were in a situation where you really needed to know because you had the symptoms that are compatible with both, you should be able to get tested for both and know definitively which of them you have, either one or the other, unlikely both, but you could have both. Yeah. What is your biggest takeaway from the last six months? You know, the, the, the takeaway for me is that we have a lot of lessons that we better learn from this terrible historic experience we're going through. This is the worst pandemic that we have had in 102 years since 1918. So we, the lessons are that our healthcare system was not adequate to address the situation that we faced ourselves in. The other lesson learned is the disparity in people who get seriously ill, the ever-present racial disparities, which are something that is that we have such an obligation to try and correct in our society. You know, 13% of our population is African American. And if you look at the number of people who get infected and who get seriously ill, it is very disproportionately negatively for African-Americans, Latinx, and even Native Americans. So we've got to do something about the disparities in health and the social determinants of health, because with every disease we face, individuals who are in the minority of the demographic group, they always do worse than others. So if we take away something from this, is maybe committing ourselves to addressing these disparities in health, because Diseases like COVID, diseases like HIV shine a very bright light on one of the real disgraces in our society about how much disparity there is in who you are, where you're born, or what your race is, whether or not you're going to get seriously ill. So those are a couple of things that I take away. You know, the thing I learned from the conversation today is that we really have to stay vigilant. It's we, uh, we're all so worn out by, by this, and, and whether our families are, and we want to get on with the world, but we have to just hang in there and stick with it. And Yeah, but you know, Dennis, one of the things that you might link up to what you just said is awareness of the fatigue that this causes because of what we've been through is to keep reminding people that this will end. I mean, we've got to realize that because when you think there's no end in sight, sometimes you throw up your hands in despair and sometimes then you get careless about things because you're just tired of being careful. If we can get the message across, it will end. I promise you it will end. It will end with a combination of good public health measures and a good vaccine, and we're going to get both. So the message to everybody out there is hang in there together. It's going to end we'll get through it. This too shall pass and we'll look back and we will have all been warriors in the fight against this devastating disease that has taken so many. so many. Right. I really appreciate you coming on the Dennis Sons today. Thank you, sir. 
Have a good trip to Oklahoma and have a, success, have a success with your next film. I'll be looking for it. I'm a great fan of yours. So as soon as it comes out and they let us into a theater, I'll be there. You bet. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me fictional golf and western country music pioneer uncle drank the series also stars luke wilson brian kelly chelsea lynn kinky friedman and billy zane as a talking blender named blendy you can find the ballad of uncle drank on sirius xm pandora stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts